Hi everyone, welcome to Brains, Black Holes, and Beyond, a collaboration podcast between the Princeton Insights Newsletter and the Daily Princetonian. From the Prince, my name is Senna. And my name is Lena. Today's guest on the show is Dr. Andres Monroe Hernandez, an assistant professor in the Computer Science Department. Dr. Monroe Hernandez got his bachelor's in computer engineering at the Monterey Institute of Technology and his master's and PhD in media arts and science at MIT. He now sits as the director of the Human Computer Interactions Lab at Princeton and teaches social computing and advises technology executives. Welcome to the show. Welcome Thank to you. the show. Yeah. So our first question for you is, what initially got you interested in computer science, more specifically human technology interactions? Yeah, um, I guess like everybody, when they were kids, they were <laughs> learning how to program. I, mean, I guess at the beginning, I was more interested in science, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to be a physicist. In fact, I enrolled as a physics major in college. At least in Mexico, you have to declare your major when you apply to college. Um, so I was like fully on physics. At the time, I felt that kind of programming and computer science was something that I could learn on my own because that's what I was doing in high school and middle school. Uh, but then once I started taking CS classes, I became really excited about it. And I was like, okay, I might just take more of these kinds of classes. Um, I guess like earlier, uh, my first experience with computers was I was in a sort of a competition in middle school in the middle 90s, I guess. It's not very common for people to have computers at home. At least in Mexico, it's very rare. But my friend and I enrolled in this competition and we got a computer as, as the kind of award for winning that competition. And so I think that got us uh, really into it. At the time, it was like one of those, uh, you had to choose a color for the screen, either as green and black or um, was it like white and black or yellow. And so there was no like, all the monitors were like monochromatic, like there was mm-hmm. only one color. Um, but it was, even then, it was super exciting to, to play with that. So, yeah. Very cool. Um, and so, I mean, now, you know, you've, I mean, you go from these middle school competitions mm-hmm. to creating, you know, many significant social media platforms like MIT Scratch, Microsoft's Meeting Scheduler, Significant Otter, to name mm-hmm. a few. Um, so we were just wondering what that process was like and how do you navigate through sort of the ethics mm-hmm. through that? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess in general, I've always been interested in the part of computer science that is less theoretical and more application centric. Uh, mm-hmm. So thinking about... How do you build tools that people use and that bring people together in new forms? And so broadly speaking, my area of expertise is social computing, which is about the design and study of uh, computational tools that bring people together. Like two people, like in the significant other example, that was for mm-hmm. couples, all the way to like millions of people, like, you know, in Scratch and other tools like that. Um, so I guess I'm interested in that intersection between the design of the tools as well as the design of the interactions between people. And so someone like if you're organizing a party, it's as much about the room as like what are the activities you're going to have. That mm-hmm. I really like that sort of uh, in between the, the, the technology and the social. Yeah. Nice. And then you asked about ethical implications of yes. things. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess there's always been, at least in my, uh, from my perspective, like um, because of this interest that I have in not just the tools, but like the tools and the people, uh, when it comes to that, there's always going to be tensions, you know, people want different things. And, and so some of my earlier experience with some of the like the ethical aspects of computing were when I was in grad school, actually working on the Scratch community, uh, even though it was like a community for kids to, you know, build and program and express themselves creatively in like positive ways, there will always be tensions. So like one of the early tensions that we had was around like some kids who were really into game, making games with Scratch versus other kids who were into making stories with Scratch. Mm-hmm. 
And so, and oftentimes those distinctions were across gender. And so like the boys uh, sometimes will be more into like the making games, although that's not always the case, but that was how some, some members of the community perceived it. And one of the challenges that we had is that we wanted to highlight on the website and the community the uh, variety of uh, things that people could make, not just one kind of project, but like very different kinds of projects. So we really like to highlight all sorts of things from stories to games, to animations, interactive art and so on. And so some of the tensions that we had were like people contesting our choice for what we will be featuring on the homepage or what will the automatic algorithm for like ranking what will come at the top, uh, should be, you know, how should it be designed and so on. Mm -hmm. And so there were like, you know, people who were like kids who were just like misbehaving with each other and mm -hmm. being mean and so on about those topics, as well as things around like copyright infringement. So like a lot of kids were very protective of their projects and they wouldn't like other kids to like remix them and uh, change them. Um, so we really had to think through about how to design systems that support certain kinds of collaborative creativity and things like that. So I will say more than ethics per se, it's more like um, at least my perspective on how to, how I've been involved in these ethical discussions is like how to resolve conflicts between people and how these tools sometimes may uh, heighten those conflicts and emphasize those conflicts and sometimes they can actually help reduce them. And so that's just kind of where, from where I'm sitting, kind of how I see, you know, ethical right. discussions. Right. Mm -hmm. Talking more about like the conflicts with these um, interactions, like mm -hmm. there are a lot of bounds to like artificial intelligence error. So sometimes like criminal assessment systems can have issues. Some softwares can be sexist, racist. Some sort of like bias can be seen in these softwares. How are scientists going about mitigating these errors? Yeah, I mean I think there's a few different things. Some people who are engineers often think, oh, we're making tools. Somebody else will figure out how people use those tools. Luckily, that kind of view of the world is kind of diminishing uh, as people see that it's not just tools that it's really about um, how people adopt these tools and like even the artifacts themselves have politics and how they're designed and so on so I think there's more awareness of that but in terms of like how people are trying to address them um, I guess there's a few different perspectives one is to kind of uh, reject new forms of technology until it feels like it's ready um, and some communities even in the US uh, feel like the Mennonites maybe or like um some communities that don't just accept technology as it is, they are like, okay, we're going to see and see how it develops before we bring it into our community. I guess that's one perspective. And I see from the technical side, you know, the way that could be implemented is by blocking certain kinds of things. So like, um, you know, like uh, ad blockers, for example, is an example. It's not necessarily about AI, but it's like a technology that is blocking something else that you don't like. Or more legal uh, takes on that. Like um, in Europe, there's a lot of legislation around Privacy, I don't know if you heard about the GDPR, like this general data privacy protection, uh, I think. Uh, so the idea is like, how do you uh, enforce better privacy uh, management of the data uh, through legal means and like charge companies a lot of money if they violate those things. And so I will say, um, I really like this uh, professor at Harvard who has this, this model about how to make change in society and, how, and what technology's role is in it. So he talks about how code is one aspect of how you can have influence. So like the design of the systems and the other one is law, like I was saying, like GDPR and other legislation. The other one he argues is like norms or like the culture and how things are adopted and used and so on. And lastly, uh, market. So like, you know, sometimes tools that are not uh, beneficial may actually not do well in the market but uh, you cannot rely on only one of them so like even if you see technologies today that are successful in the marketplace that may not be uh, good for society you know there is a culture around how to think about that in new ways so I will say these four 
uh, different pieces like code, law, culture, and markets are probably some of the more effective ways to address uh, these sort of biases. And more specifically with AI bias, and it's not an area that I actively work on, but one of my close collaborators, uh, Olga Rosakovsky in our department, has been doing a lot of work on kind of uh, acknowledging the biases in the data that is being collected to train uh, AI and then trying to figure out ways of uh, addressing that bias, like how do you collect more representative data from different geographies and things like that. So I think that's kind of one angle that I see you know, very promising. I see, I see. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and speaking about you know, the broader topic ideas like culture, law, computer programming, um, where do you see the future of society headed as we see more inter social interactions being held in technological spaces or yeah. virtual spaces? Yeah, I mean, I guess right now we're in this moment of like, you can have a utopian or a dystopian view. Yeah. <laughs> and probably it's going to be somewhere in between. Um, but I guess the uh, optimist in me feels like we probably will have more and more tools that give more voice to broader range of people and also kind of democratize access, not just to the technology, but to the making of that technology. So like some of the work that uh, we were doing with Scratch and actually even some of the work that we are starting now here, is really about thinking of how do we enable more people to think of technology as something that they can create with and construct in the way that benefits them as opposed to something that you passively accept. Right. Um, and so that's one, one angle of, of that. And then I guess in the dystopian view of things is that technology will continue to uh, highlight some of the cultural and societal uh, inequalities and you know uh, negative aspects of society from racism to discrimination to you know uh, colonialism all of those negative things can be uh, emphasized even more and made worse through technology mm -hmm. and so you know my hope is that we can uh, help um, prevent those things by architecting these technologies in ways that make it harder obviously probably it will be really difficult to make it impossible but also make it harder uh, and also like help communities or groups of people kind of uh, boost the kind of positive and pro-social uh, behavior on, on, online uh, or just in general with technology. Um, so I guess it's going to be the, the question of the next few years, right? Like mm -hmm. how are we going to manage in, manage this? And we see this every day, like Twitter today, you know, it's like imploding and like there is these different tensions around how we imagine a better um, social media environment, for example. And so I think it's you know, good opportunities to either change what we have or, or bad opportunities to continue doing something bad that we were doing before. Mm -hmm. This is kind of not really as related to the idea of like, you know, the future of society and technological interactions and things like that. But what is something that's misunderstood in your field or a misconception that the general public has? Mm. I guess my field is human computer interaction. And I think when people hear that, they often think of um, the early stages of our field was focused on one user, one device. And so a lot of the work in HCI was focused on like, how do we make a better mouse or how do we measure more effective ways of you know designing a physical or, or digital interface like the size of the button and stuff like that and I think that's become more of a um, an area of uh, very active development among practitioners like if you work at say Google or something you may be you know as an engineer be designing different versions of a button and then doing like large-scale data analysis to see which one works better and things like that uh, but I think the field now has moved away from that and it has focused a lot more on kind of what we were just discussing, like the societal implications of technology, uh, as well as on kind of um, thinking of 
group or, or collectives coming together and using the technology, not just one person, one computer. Um, so I think a lot more has been moved to, towards that lately. Um, so I would say that's more of a misconception from like an academic perspective that if people would think of HCI equals like designing of UIs. Um, that's kind of a small part of it. There's a lot more uh, to it than, than just that. Um, yeah, and I guess to finish it off, I mean, is there anything else that you would like to, you know, include, like any take main takeaways that you'd like our readers to sort of keep in mind, um, I guess, in related to, you know, social media, uh, technology in general? Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess since you guys talk to students, uh, uh, maybe an invitation to reach out if they're interested in any of these topics. We have a few different projects. Yeah. Maybe I'll tell you a little bit about how we landed on those projects. So. I had been, uh, before coming to Princeton, I spent about 11 years in the tech industry, both at Microsoft and then at Snapchat. And throughout all those years, there were like always projects that I wanted to do, but I didn't have a connection to a for-profit uh, kind of um, goal of a company, uh, but that I thought were really important for society. So my goal here is to work with students in building public interest technologies. And so that is thinking about what uh, alternatives there may be to existing platforms or to existing technologies that are not designed just to make money for a company but to better society. Mm -hmm. So like a few examples of things that we're doing are uh, building a uh, distributed, like more of a decentralized and locally owned alternative to uh, DoorDash and Uber Eats, kind of these uh, food delivery companies. Like what would it look like if they were owned by say unions of taxis or, or, or drivers or by local restaurants or by municipalities and so on. Uh, we are also exploring things around like augmented reality to help kids learn uh, programming and you know uh, kind of like a version of Scratch for augmented reality. So generally speaking, just thinking about public interest technology, I think that's, that's an area that will be great for us to connect with more students. And then do you just have any general advice for students listening or listeners in general? Um, I mean, I guess one thing is like, even if you are not an engineer or a computer scientist, that there's a lot for people to contribute in technology development, from philosophy to design, uh, you know, to social sciences. I feel like technology is like everywhere now and part of, you know, every single thing we do. And so I feel like the more people are engaged in those decisions, the better. And I feel like one thing that um, maybe I feel disappointed sometimes is that we often um, kind of observe the problems with technology, uh, but don't necessarily propose or work towards making better versions of that. And I feel like even if one is not a technologist, uh, you can still be part of that movement. Um, so like even today when we were talking about the Twitter implosion, like there is a big movement towards a federated alternative to, to Twitter called Mastodon. And I think even if one doesn't run an instance or Mastodon, one could try playing with that and like run like using those sort of alternatives. So I guess every single click or download of an app that you do is in itself a kind of participation in an environment that you may or may not agree with. So I think just kind of think making those uh, decisions more conscious uh, will be really helpful for everyone. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining sure. us today. Yeah, this was super you. awesome. Mm -hmm. Cool. Cool. Yes. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. This episode of B Cubed was hosted by me and Lena Kim, sound engineered by me, and produced under the 146th Managing Board of the Prince. For more information about Dr. Monroe Hernandez's research, visit the links in the podcast episode description. From the Prince, my name is Sena Eldabash. Have a great rest of your day.